So thanks, uh, Nabil, for organizing this uh, in Terminal as well. Uh, obviously, it's a great feat to get this many product managers in one room at one time. So kudos to you. Uh, before we started, just to get gauge of the room and understand who we're talking to here, who here is a product manager currently or ex-product manager? Okay, good chunk. Um, what about aspiring product managers? People that want to be, oh, okay. Um, cool. Uh, what about people who have to suffer through working with product managers? <laughs> okay, there you go. Okay, good to know, good to know. Um, and then lastly, people maybe in the startup founder uh, world, um, anyone here from like working on their own business? Cool, okay, awesome. That's super helpful. So just to give some backstory here, uh, Latif and I know each other from back in the day when Latif was uh, just getting Roadmuck off the ground at Communitech, just on the street. Uh, we met at a product management peer-to-peer -peer, uh, run by Bill Scott. He's in the room here today. Thanks for joining, Bill. Um, and uh, I was always super, uh, uh, always admired Latif for a lot of things. He's extremely determined, extremely driven. Um, I've always felt when I'm around him that he knows exactly what he needs to do. He just needs to figure out how to do it. Um, so I'm super uh, excited today to have a, the chance to talk to him in front of everyone and uh, have some pretty interesting discussions that we've been excited about having for a while. And I think the reason why Latif is extra, in, extra in, interesting to listen to today and talk to is that he's not only a product manager, um, and someone who has a keen sense for product, he also works on a company, Roadmonk, which I'm sure he'll describe in uh, just a second, that sells to product managers. And so he has both an individual contributor, product manager, founder um, mindset, but also a macro view of the, the industry at large. So lots of interesting things to learn um, from that perspective as well, because as a product manager, I often don't think about us as an industry and as a uh, uh, profession on a macro scale. So um, exciting to dive into that as well. Uh, myself, I've been in the Kitchen Waterloo Toronto corridor for um, six years now from a working perspective, five years as a student. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to bring to the table a little bit of like my individual contributor uh, uh, perspective from working at North for the last four and a half years. Uh, which is crazy to say that it's been four and a half years already. But uh, And uh, at North, we build the world's greatest smart glasses. Um, we're trying to make smart glasses that you actually wear, um, be excited to wear, and something that's valuable beyond just prescription glasses. So with further ado, um, actually, before we jump in, um, we're not experts here. We're just um, two guys that have a lot to say. So feel free to chime in, um, raise your hand, uh, let us know if you think that something we're saying is wrong um, or right. Always good to know. Um, if you have different perspectives to share, we'd be happy to have you in. We're not going to do like a, a talk and then have 30 minutes of questions. I think it's just better just to talk, and you guys can chime in and raise hands and ask questions as we go. Okay? Cool. So I'll hand over to uh, Latif to maybe give a brief intro on who you are and maybe talk a little bit about Roadmonk as well. Sounds good. Thank you for that introduction, Sam. Very kind of you. And I've known Sam, like he said, for the better part of eight years. And even, I think, back to when I was a product manager at My Vision when Sam was at Communitech. And to watch his career grow like this is truly awesome. So I'm happy to be sharing the stage with you or couch with you um, today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Roadmonk, as an organization, we are here to service product managers like yourself. And our goal is to enable teams to be able to collect feedback from their customers, prioritize effectively, and then obviously share those plans and have transparency across an organization. That task is immensely difficult and 
Um, I was just sharing the story of how the company started in a little bit more tactile way, which I thought might be fun for the group here because there are some people starting companies and there are some people that are product managers and the blend is great. But one thing about the community here that was really sealed it for me is I was in Bill Scott's P2P back there in 2013 and I usually like to sort of vomit out all the problems I had and hopefully he could solve them all for me. But one day I had the opportunity to present the challenges that we had at MyVision, one of which was actually creating roadmaps, something that we all have to do as product managers. But we were doing it in such a disorganized fashion and I had explained we had built an internal tool and there was a gentleman by the name of Andre who was sitting to the left of me and just looked at, looked at me in the front and said, I'll pay you for that. And I, <laughs> I was just like, and a light bulb, like, I mean, really the proverbial light bulb went off and I chased this person down. I sat down and designed the application with him. And today, you know, we're 110 people. We have over 3,200 customers. Um, we are a company that has almost basically bootstrapped and only done a seed round. And we get to really build the vision of the organization in a way that I think is unique. Um, and of course, we are, I have to say this, but we are launching two new products, an API, an entire feedback and idea management portal that's connected to all the stuff that product managers need to do next month. So it's a really exciting time to be in Roadmonk. It's a really exciting time to be a product manager, although there's some things that we're going to talk about that may not be so fun. And I'm just happy to be here. Um, so I'll start with that. And I think maybe we can just jump in after that. Yeah. Sure. I mean, um, so when we were chatting about this talk a couple of weeks back, you, uh, I reached you in a very interesting place. It was neither Toronto or Kitchener. Uh, I think it was Panama. Uh, yes. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Um, and not only were you in Panama, you were there with your whole team that usually lives here or in Toronto. So could you talk a little bit about why you were all in Panama? Yeah, absolutely. So a little off beat but from the topic, but really important. And the reason it's important is it has to do with the fact that we have two offices. We have 70 people here and 40 in Toronto. And so every year we travel to Latin America and bring the teams together for whoever can travel for two weeks. And so we've been through anywhere from Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Colombia, and now Panama. And we set this particular trip up because we wanted there to be a sense of togetherness for the people that haven't had the opportunity, opportunity to meet. That sounds kind of crazy in a company of 100 because those people all realistically should have shaken hands at one point or another. That's not the case in our company. And so that mixed with the warm weather and a co-working space that actually has really great Wi-Fi really led to an experience that was super different. And those relationships changed the way that those people operate and knew, know who they're connecting with. And one example that came up through the sort of product development organization is that we were in the middle of a huge technical launch. And those teams, both across the offices on the product marketing side and the ops side, were for the first time really spending every single day with those teams into the night. And getting to watch that and everyone else talking about watching the product development team do that as a unified group was really something special, especially when we were all bringing them dinner or food at the end of the night. So I think, to me, that moment really solidified why we do those trips and why we will continue to do them. Cool. Okay, so let's get into product management. So we, uh, like I said at the top, uh, he's got a really interesting view on the macro uh, of product management as a category and industry. So maybe could you give us a macro view of product management as an industry to start us off? Sure. You're going to have to stop me because I might I go off on a little bit of a tangent here. So I've obviously spent my entire career, career in either doing the startup role or the product manager role and basically a combination of the two. And the first thing I noticed, if you ever go to Google Trends and you type in product manager 
investment banker, management consultant. You will notice there's an inflection, and that inflection happened in 2014. Now, I didn't look at this trend until two years after that. It just so happened the company started and launched in 2014. So if you want to talk about market timing, it was quintessentially one of the best inflection points. And product manager was consistently lower than those two jobs and then has escalated to be double either one of those in terms of the search volume and the profession. That speaks volumes to the relevancy of what we do. The second piece of information that's really coming to grip here is the fact that there was 32% more product management openings over the last two year span. This also indicates that organizations are becoming highly aware and respecting the role that each of us need to play within that organization. This shouldn't come as a surprise because the title itself has reached that set of accolade. Now what happens is of course the tools follows, the distribution of data and information changes as well as the processes and of course that started with you know, moving from waterfall to agile but everyone somehow just happens to live in between forever which is totally fine by the way. Um, so those are a couple of the major trends and I think the third that is also just recently come into my mind is the CPO title. And so this has not really been discussed but it is of interest to me because this is the one that clashes with founders like myself. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing yet, I haven't formed a total opinion. But what I do know is that product-led companies, like the ones we work in, or probably one, many of the ones you work in, those are the ones that have the hardest time with the CPO. And that role is critical because it takes away the product vision from the founder. And some of the sales CEOs are like happy to do that, just like I have a counterpart that is the head of sales in our CRO, I don't need to worry about that. But that is a role that I think there was, the stat was something about 1,048 postings happened in December uh, over the course new, and 648 were posted in like a two week span. Like the increase in volume for leadership roles in this regard to hold the product vision is in desperate mode because so many companies struggle to actually know how to innovate, increase, introduce new products. The first product is the reason they're all trying to get hired. That's not the hard part. It's those second, third, and fourth editions because organizations struggle to figure out how to actually take their whole new company and go, all right, let's do this all over again. And so the mindset of a, what I call a product manager, a maintenance product manager versus a startup product manager do differ in these types of organizations. So, so what do those trends all mean? How do we like, what do we do with all of that? Um, one, I think it's just a recognition, right? We recognize that our role has been understood. And then two, we have to leverage it. We have to leverage the brand. We have to represent the brand. And how we do that is going to be reflective in the organization. What's unique is we actually have that opportunity. Sales already has its brand. Marketing people have their brands. Executives have their brands. Product management is forming the brand. And so how we characterize and how we hold ourselves and conduct ourselves in the organization will actually make us actually very alluring for the people that want to help us and do the job that we do that is so stressful, but then also transform and be thought leaders in the community at large. You stopped yourself? I did. That's good. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the tools because I know you sit in a place where uh, Roadmunk is uh, a tool of the tool set that many product managers use. What are the tools outside of Roadmunk are like a lot of product managers starting to pick up these days? Because I, uh, at, at North, you know, we have, you know, an organization of roughly 200 to 300 people. You know, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the stage of business if you've been in, in any business of that size where things are constantly in flux, tools are used and then abandoned within three months. 
Um, and we've really had a hard time of trying to figure out not only what tools are right, but also what the processes around them are right as well. Um, everyone's got their support uh, website with all the different templates you can use, as mm -hmm. I see that you do. Mm -hmm. um, but what is, in your mind, like when you think about product managers, like what are the tools that they need to have, or what are the tools that the effective product managers have and, and leverage really well? Can I maybe change the question? Sure. I think it's like, <laughs> it's so before the tools, there's a cultural challenge. Sure. And I think it'd be interesting to talk about like sort of product management where it was five or 10 years ago and where it is today, and then how that actually translates into the software world and the data-driven tools. And so maybe I'm, I'm gonna just alter that. What's really interesting, you know, when I started my career in product management, like many of us do, we manage a backlog. We push out improvements, we get them out there, we hope they're used. Sometimes we might even be lucky if we track them, but ultimately we kind of have this singular goal around sales. Can we get this thing to sell? Because if we get this thing to sell, the valuation of the business increases, the founders can raise capital, capital pays for the company, the valuation increases, liquidity event, everyone can sell, hallelujah. The reality is, is that those cycles are not everlasting. Those companies tend to fall off. So if you want to build sort of this infinite business, if you're a Simon Sinek fan, product management actually has to change the way that it does and forms its culture within the organization. So the first thing that's really changed, and I think um, for anyone who's had the opportunity to work with like Andrew Chen or any of the guys in the Valley or Brian Belfort, is the Reforge program. This is really taking the elite organizations and talking about how they structure information to better the user experience. And we are completely succumbed to this, and as soon as our brains are hijacked by those dopamine loops, from using an application on a phone, those are some really sophisticated PMs behind that. And quite frankly, we need to get that good. Not in the sense of the consumerization or the manipulation of our, you know, our children or our offspring that are completely distracted, but for the business-to-business -to -business tools, we need to be, have them engaged and create value for the business. And so when I look at where things were three or four years ago, they're really coming down to, one, having the right analytical tools. So, what does that mean? Well, you can look at the amplitudes of the world. You can look at even some of the pendos, although I think amplitude is a bit stronger, in helping create a culture where anytime a product manager actually pushes something out, there's something called a readout. And this readout is problem that they solved, what the solution is, what their hypothesis is, even if it's a new feature, and then being able to say, here's the metric I'm actually trying to move, whether it's logins, engagement on a particular part of the application and then being accountable, accountable to that week over week. This is not exclusive to consumer companies. This is the way that the best business-to-business -business companies do it. It's how investors evaluate us against the slacks, the intercoms, and the Zendesks of the world. It's how valuation multiples increase from 5x to 20x. These are the m differences that they make, and product management culture This really controls that. That is the part that I cannot kind of reinforce enough to this group is making sure that we don't just push stuff out there and not track its success. And I know we've all said, okay, we're trying to do that and this and that. So then what's the second thing? Well, the second thing is, do you guys have a data team? Is that data team living in another part of the organization? Maybe it's sitting under engineering. That's the wrong place for it to sit. The place for it to sit is actually under the head of product because the head of product has to be technical enough to guide the data team to actually support the infrastructure of what the product is trying to accomplish. Yes, there's operational things that need to happen and you can throw that in your IT team. That's different. 
this has to be the way of the future. Otherwise, the velocity and the cycles of actually iterating on these things will always be met with political crap that's happening in the organization. So those are the two things I think culturally need to change to be sort of the fully modern day product manager. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that resonates with me when you say that is this idea of uh, uh, measuring success as a product manager. Uh, when I was starting in product management um, and trying to understand, like, how do I gauge my own success yeah. as an individual contributor? Uh, when I look around, I think about, you know, all these people that are shipping lots of stuff, right? I'm like, oh man, I, I just need to ship a lot, of, right? But when it comes down to it, in North at least, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is um, measuring success not on shipping, but on retention and adoption. Um, and I think that mindset is like small shift, right? And, and it kind of means the same thing in some ways, or it could mean the same thing for a lot of people. But it's very, very different when you get down to like brass tacks and like what that actually means for like how you measure it, but also like how you incentivize people to to make that happen, right? Are you guys going through that cultural shift right now? Well, so I mean, at North, um, we're in an interesting stage where we're you know version one has been out the door for a long time now. We've stopped sales of version one and we're working on version two. Um, but through the process of shipping version one, we definitely learned pretty quickly how um, you know having a lot of data. It's a good thing, but having the right data and, and, and looking at it the right way is like really, really difficult. Mm. Um, I think we, uh, you know, to reflect on what we've done, I think we've done a lot of um, data gathering and a lot of uh, dashboarding, um, but I don't think we've ever figured out properly how to like measure success of like a feature, mm. feature A versus feature B, right? And I don't know if there is a right way, and I'm sure it's case by case and company by company, but. Um, Figure out a way that, as an individual like myself, as a, in a product role, how can I um, uh, better myself and learn how to better myself by measuring those kind of things for the things that I work on? One of the things that, and I'm not sure if you've done this, but a lot of organizations in the Valley do this pretty early on. I'm of the opinion it usually should happen above a five million ARR. Before that, an instinct of a founder pretty much trumps anything because that's the way the business is going to go anyway. So don't get in their fucking way. Um, is that, is that speaking as a founder? No, I, mean, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Being on sales calls is like the weirdest thing because like in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm like if I was a salesperson, I'm like, I'm going to oversell this. And then like the product manager version of me is like fighting. It was really strange early on to do that. That's a whole other story though. Um, but in that, it, what's really interesting to change, part of that I think is to do with a product growth team. Because when you own the roadmap or you own these big things you got to deliver and they take weeks or six week cycles or three month cycles to do, the last thing you're going to really think about is like, how am I going to measure that one week improvement? And the Valley figured this out many years ago. And I think the ecosystem here could really benefit from that is to really create a separate growth team. So I had the opportunity of spending some time with Mercy who ran growth and onboarding at Slack. So it was a 50 person team early on and they change the landscape of how effective that could be, of course, them being top three fastest companies ever created. And one of the things that I took away from the conversations with her was that if you have a growth team that does not report into product management, that basically is a mirror that evaluates how the product management team does, that will make your product team better. So how is, how is a growth team different from like a research team? So a research depends on how you define research. I guess like so, you know, in our world, like at, at North, we do that, and that dynamic is driven by like the user researcher, right? So the user researcher should be, um, 
driving insights based off what we've delivered and saying like, this is what we hope to achieve and this is what we actually achieved. So like, where's the delta? Why has that not happened? So I think it is a component of that. So the expectation from a growth team is really twofold. So one is they go in and they look at everything that's built and they go, where are they baselining? And then two, they go, clearly we missed the ball. We launched this feature and it didn't accomplish this. We're gonna go in and improve those experiments. So gaming is obviously notoriously good at that, but let's leave gaming aside because we all know what that could look like. But how does this work in B2B SaaS? Well, when we launch a feature and we were like, we expected like, you know, you launch an integration, you expect 20% or 15% adoption in current customers that have that integration available to use. But if it's, let's say it's 5%, well, you're gonna send your growth team in and say, figure out why, where are all the blockers, look at every piece of the workflow. Oh, there's a login issue with authentication, cause whatever. Go in and solve that problem and then show me the metric that improves it. And if you uncover that this is across you know, a huge technical gap that we found, then you go to the product team and say, put that on your roadmap. It's a bigger thing that you need to deal with, but I've discovered that I can improve 10%. Even if your user base is 50,000 users and it's small in B2B, you can go and affect that. So is that kind of like what you're describing to me? That's almost like quality assurance, but for product. It's exactly that. It's basically a team that sits outside of product and tells you what you're doing wrong. Because <laughs> we don't have enough people do, telling us that already. You never do. No. Okay, interesting. Um, so on that topic, let's, uh, let's dive into something that I think you're uniquely placed to kind of talk about, uh, San Francisco versus KWTO. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to get disparaging in how we talk about this because I, I know that everyone knows that there's a difference. Um, but I want to maybe just open up the conversation and see where it goes. So I think we were both discussing how the difference in terms of like engineering talent and caliber of engineering between Kitchener-Waterloo, Toronto, and the Valley is negligible, if not zero. Um, I mean, the most, the, the big fact is that when you go down there, most of them are people are from Waterloo, so they, and they exist here too, right? So there's not much of a difference, at least from what I've seen. Uh, but, uh, and I, and I want to put this uh, in, a, in a good term, in a good way, and the words are important here, but the, the level of product thinking in the Valley is very, very different than the level of product thinking here. And I'm not saying that the product managers are different. I think the quality um, uh, in terms of people are the same, but a level of product thinking is very different. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or like insight into. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of organizations there, and I do agree with you. I think when you look at it from a raw talent perspective, there's no difference. The difference is they just have, in terms of like the people, the organizational structure, there's, there is a difference. They have a lot of larger companies, so they get to kind of play within those ecosystems. And then those people take on the culture and the environment in which they grow up in. So for example, I'll mention Mercy again. She would never hire a product manager from Facebook because Facebook's product managers don't think for themselves. They think only from data. They are not allowed to make qualitative decisions based on anything. So you go through five years of being a product manager there, you walk out and you go into an organization, you're completely frozen. You can't actually function in terms of qualitative information, which for her at Slack was a huge component because it was such a new novel idea in terms of how they were, speed at which they were going. So I think that was the one thing that really resonated with me there. And two, I think is there is a, a loyalty issue there, right? So you end up having people jump because of the pressure of the investors and VCs in that ecosystem. They basically say, you have two or three years to figure this out, otherwise we're gonna blow you up. Right? And the valuation blows up, people get upset, engineers jump. And so you have this lack of loyalty and so everyone's kind of skipping a beat unless they hit like 
a home run. And even then, they were like, well, my option's vested. Let me just go try something new. And so there's this continuation of lack of loyalty, but the consequence, good or bad, is that their learning curves are so condensed because of the time constraints they have to operate in. In Canadian culture, we afford ourselves more time. One, because I, and I think this is just a function of not just Canada, but most global tech hubs outside of the valley, perhaps New York and Israel are exceptions. And what that does is it kind of lets the teams grow at a slower pace and at a more sustainable rate. And there's certain types of people that love working in those organizations. And I do think that there is something to be said about it. So I'm not saying those are good or bad things. I'm just saying those are different things. And they both have their pros and cons. Um, one just happens to have a consequence of more rapid learning. And so some of those PMs do come out with that effect. And I think the one thing that was a consequence of that was the sort of growth team that has been instantiated in the last five years in all these organizations because they said, well, your product team is just shipping these things every quarter and they're doing these big things, but how do you know they're being effective? And so this growth team would just come in and run 20 cycles around them and then say, here, go do this other thing because we have so much more information than you. And I think the balance between those two things is what we can take away from that. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the other things that I've been mulling over in my head for a while, um, and some people here from North as well know that I talk about this a lot, but the difference between like current um, product management in the Toronto, Toronto area to the Valley, in my perspective, is this idea of like experienced design product managers. So product managers who care more about um, how the experience looks, feels, and operates, mm. not just delivering like functional benefit to the customer. Um, and at North, you know, I've spent, I don't know how many hours, I've probably interviewed 100 to 200 people for product roles at North. And it always strikes me how much conversation um, at the product to product, product manager to product manager in this area revolves around engineering and software. Um, and very, very little time spent talking about design and experience. Mm. Um, and one thing that I like, really, really admire about the Valley and the products that they churn out is just how good they are at building great experiences. So how have you taken that, and I think that I completely agree with all of that, what have you done differently? How have you structured your teams? What's evolved in your organization to accommodate that? So I mean, part of it is, is giving the accountability and the responsibility to the product manager for the experience. Um, I think that uh, you have to build in processes. We've been trying out this new process called Shape Up by Basecamp, um, which kind of puts the onus on the um, product manager specifically to do like the actual interaction and user flows like how a customer will actually flow through the product when they do it. And personally, as I've been adopting it and trying it out in, in, at North, it's like super, super helpful to help me um, get a better grasp of like what the experience is. And it also makes me feel accountable for making sure the experiences can be as best as they can be. Instead of saying, hey, designer A, engineer A, B, um, here's the experience or here's the feature we want to ship. These are the things you need to do. Can you come back to me with recommendations on interaction design um, and then like obviously the, the technical requirements that will make it all happen? I actually have to spend the, about a month's time, months ahead of when this thing is going to be picked up by the engineering design team, actually working through the specifics of like the interaction and the experience itself, and then figuring out like what is the important parts to make the experience come through in the way that I need to make it come through, and testing that with uh, um, customers or uh, prototyping in ways that is like testable, I should say. So did you, do you have the, so I mean this is a really tactile question, but do you have designers then report into the product manager? Do they sit outside? Like what is the structure that accommodates that? And then two is, did you just have to learn design? Like where did you spend the time, did you find the time to do that? Yeah, I mean, so uh, one of the things that I was, uh, this guy named Todd, I think Todd Thompson at Dropbox, 
now is left in joint first round capital as an investor. Um, super interesting product manager, um, great thinker, but when it comes to uh, modern day product management. One of the things that he stood out in a story that he told recently was about the early days of Google when he was um, there. He was in, I think, the 30 or 40 person. Um, and he used to work directly side by side with Marissa Mayer, who was uh, running product at Google in the early days and for a long time after that. And he said the most important meetings that he had on a weekly basis with uh, Marissa was the design critique sessions where she would bring in every single product manager and designer into a room one by one, go through pixel perfect designs and tear it apart piece by piece and tell them to come back next week with a better design. Um, and that was the level of diligence that they were spending like the very, very early days of Google, right? So this was like really um, a heavy investment from Marissa's perspective in terms of time, energy, um, and resources. But it, it, it's the diligence and the, the follow through that allows that to happen in an organization like North. And I think that um, you know, one of the things that we may get to talk to in later part of this conversation or not, but the amount of investment that um, an organization needs to put into the product team and actually create the space for product managers to operate um, is super difficult at our stage. We're a 200 to 300 person business. The founders are very heavily involved, like you just said, their, their way of the highway, right? Uh, and that's great, um, but in a lot of ways, it's difficult for product managers to operate in a space that like, they can freely um, accept responsibility and accountability for the whole experience mm. and make that stuff happen. So in, in North, what we've done is we have a product experience team, and I don't know if this is the right way of doing it, but this is how we do it. Um, and we have the design designers and the product managers technically under the same org, essentially. So we are like colleagues and teammates. Now when it comes to actually working, um, together, we actually have like a design lead or a prime that would like be right hand in hand with the product manager who's working on something, and they're there to like give guidance, give feedback on how that stuff um, is following out in the in the spec. And then, of course, at the end of the day, once the spec is kind of not handed off, but is the design team is kind of pu pulling it in full steam for their work, uh, they have they're not starting from scratch, they're not starting from zero. They have um, some context as to why the product manager has made the decisions that he or she has made mm -hmm. to make it the way it is. Um, and then it's more collaborative versus like, here's, here's, the, here's what we need to build, okay, here's what I think it, look, it could look like, okay, well that doesn't look right, go back and make something else. Um, so that collaborative process um, seems to be working a little bit better from a learning how to do design. Um, I would say just like watching designers work, giving them feedback, asking them questions. One of the um, most interesting things that I've learned over the last couple of years in terms of working with design team members is, um, I thought that my point, my job as a product manager was to like specifically know what was wrong about designs or experiences. But I think now I've realized that my job is not to know what's wrong, my job is to ask questions. And, and that's how I give feedback to design teams now. And then through that process, I ask questions, I learn why they did certain things, I take notes and come back and you know, every day I'm becoming a little bit better of a designer. That's fantastic. Uh, for the audience, how many of you um, currently work closely with designers and how many of those people actually sit in the critique meetings and actually get to listen to maybe an experienced designer rip apart a design so that it improves the learning of your sort of jobs. Yeah, so I guess some less than half the hands just stayed up there. I think that really is an incredible point where you get to see the senior people actually give feedback, right? It's I mean, if you wanted to learn marketing, it might be even the same thing. If someone's critiquing a piece of content, like that might be a good way to learn it. But for this, it's so relevant to what we do because 
Now the bar every single year, and you all know this, is so much higher with design. You looked at the most beautifully designed apps three years ago. Now everyone's doing that. And so you're just looking around going like, how do I play catch up? Or how do I make sure that I stay at this level? Or how do I exceed it? And I think that's a really great piece of advice to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, in, it's incredible to me. Like at, at North, we have an interesting constraint because we work on a device that is very, very small. And the display is very, very small as well. Mm in terms of like the pixels by pixels we get in terms of uh, our interface. So we have to make really, really tough decisions and, and trade-offs in terms of where, uh, what affordances get to go where, what parts of the experiences get to actually happen because we don't actually get to make everything we want to make because sometimes our display just can't handle it. Our interface just doesn't have the option to do it. So it's, it's incredible to me over the last couple of years seeing how much diligence and hard work it takes to get something to make, be simple. So in that regard of hardware, you know, you're in a, very unique space. I think there are some hard, there, Waterloo is known for some of their hardware teams here. What is product management look like in hardware? How does it differ? And what have you learned that would be worth sharing in sort of the modern day context? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can speak fully to that. I'm, I'm more on the software side. I, I, uh, our teammates, Scott and Lisa, I don't know if they're here or not, um, they're on the hardware side of the business. It's a completely different job. Um, and I don't know if, if we're doing hardware product management the best way that we probably could, but their job is more about you know, working with a huge hardware, electrical, mechanical design organization and making sure that the customer's, need, uh, customer's desires are followed through on every de single decision. And that's really, really tough because unlike software where you know, we can make mistakes and we can rip it out and put in, put in new mistakes, um, hardware, if they make a mistake, it's a six-month schedule slip. So. Uh, I have a lot of admiration for the, the product managers who work in that space. Very, very different job, though. Yeah. Um, so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit more about the role itself. Does anyone have any questions or thoughts so far? Anything you want to chime in on? If not, we can just keep going. I absolutely agree with that. What, what, do you, what, uh, what do you want us to do more of? How do you guys do design critiques right now? Yeah, so we hold open sessions where anyone's able to come, like everyone's available. Sometimes the product managers do come, and we go, well, we, first of all, we bring back to what the problem we're trying to solve, and then the designer goes through what their solution is and how it's attacking the problem, and walks through the user flows and just asks for critiques on any aspects of the user flows, or if people thought that what was presented solved the original problem that was being tackled. So it's interesting that you say it because that's kind of my, my primary point there is that what you just described means that you as a designer is owning the user flow in a way, which is, which is great. Um, but there's no sh like, if there's not shared accountability between you and a product manager on that user flow, um, it's very easy to let something go because you don't have the understanding of why that user flow is the way it is, right? So um, I'm going to go one step further sure. because we've talked product managers and designers, but then there's the people that actually have to code this. 
And the third level who is, are, who are I don't know, what did we, what did we call them? Are they coder? No. Programmers, I think, is the cool YC term. The, re <laughs> the, re <laughs> the reality is, is if all three of those people were in the room, what would look different now? It strikes me as that now you're going to get empathy not just from a product manager, but from the person who's coding it and may see a new technical solution given your stack. May see something that's more creative and fast. And I've run into this constantly in my career with really smart and thoughtful engineers. And if all three of those people were doing critiques, not just on design, not just on the new product ideas and problems that they're trying to solve, but introducing also at another level quality assurance. So when we do a new feature introduction, we want to make sure that we have one of those people from each of the teams in there. It's nice if you have a product and designer, at least at a high level, if they're really technical, okay, maybe you can get a check mark there. That's not always the case. And if you have the builder in there, they're now invested. And if you have the quality assurance person in there, they now know in advance where the big gaps are going to be and help with the predictability of the launch, because that's where a lot of things can sometimes get held up. So can you imagine a world where you go two levels deeper, deeper there? And what would that team look like if they were constantly in synchronicity sitting with each other every single day shipping? That to me sounds like a pretty interesting idea. It's probably like Nirvana, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, so in our organization, when it comes to bringing engineers into the conversation, I think the hardest part for us is to uh, make the business investment seem reasonable in terms of like taking an engineer away from doing the stuff that he or she is really good at um, and making them sit through a design critique. Mm. Uh, making that justification to the engineer has proven to me to be pretty difficult. Some engineers naturally love it. Um, some other engineers naturally just don't care. Um, so I don't know if it's maybe finding one or two and ha having them as the key people that can kind of come into those sessions as much as possible in and out. I think it would be like the dev manager who maybe has a hybrid of a maker and a manager schedule. Right. Because if you, yeah, if you introduce some of the people that are constantly in maker mode, that can be probably pretty distracting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, just a follow up to that thought because I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I've recently adopted uh, uh, ShapeUp, so trying to disciple something new. Um, I just want to get some thoughts on what do we actually mean by owning the user flows. Because right now what I'm doing is almost, I want to design the mockups uh, along with the user flows and everything else. But to what level do we do that so that your engineering team is free enough to you know, come up with something better or provide better ideas and things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the, really, the part that I actually love most about ShapeUp, and for anyone who's uh, interested, you can look it up. It's by uh, Basecamp. Uh, they've got it all free online. You can go through it as a pretty quick read, too. Um, this concept of breadboarding and fat marker sketching. So we've been trying to use the, f the breadboarding concept as much as possible. And this concept is basically, you know, you uh, use user flows in the same way that you would breadboard electronic, uh, like a, a little bread, literal breadboard, where you're drawing wires from place to place, right? And so what that unlocks me from doing as product manager is I'm no longer worried about is this a button or is this a page or is this a modal? I'm worried about just like where does the user go when he or she wants to go from here to there? Um, 
I have found that that's not always deep enough, right? But I also found that if I go deeper, then I start to make um, like assumption mistakes, and I'm uh, putting the, I'm taking away creativity away from the team to do the best job that they can to get the job done right. So I don't know. I think that's a little bit of like the art and science of product management is is that right there, right? Um, I found that um, if you work with talented people and like amazing people like I do, which I'm very blessed to. Uh, it's interesting thing about product management to me is understanding how to give them the space to do their best work um, every single day, uh, but make sure that that space is a box that we will get the job done that we need to get done. And like that magic of like knowing where those lines are is like really really tough. I found. Yeah. Hi, um, a, a suggestion for the solution for the, the getting the devs involved. Um, it always surprises me actually that devs don't want to get involved with this, but they surprise me again and again and don't. Um, so what we have where I work is we have what's called an architectural working group, um, which is a volunteer thing. They volunteer to be in it, and then when a project is being designed or whatever it might be, we can select people from that group, or they can select themselves, and so then you can pull an engineer from that group, and it's kind of a, everyone gets to play around in different areas of the business, they get to experience different things. And in the end, like 90% of the engineers end up joining that group anyway because they see the sort of interesting stuff that's happening. So maybe that would be a, a way to do it, create like a little volunteer group or something, just, to, just an idea for you. Just, yeah. That's interesting. There's a question down here, Nabil. Or. So as an aspiring product manager, um, I'm wondering like, what are some ways you think are like best ways to improve your product vision and um, just like better understand the users. I know a lot of times people talk about like user interviews and doing user research, but like how do you actually do that? Like to what extent are you able to improve your skills through that? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take another Latif approach here. I'm gonna change the question if, if I can. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I've spent a lot of time you know, going for coffee and, or grabbing lunch with people like yourself who are trying to get into product management. Um, I don't know if anyone here in the room who is a product manager could say that there's a consistent way to get into product management right now. I think that's actually probably one of the biggest problems with product management in general, and we can talk about that too, with the APM program that Latif is working on in uh, Toronto. Uh, but uh, what I say to these people and what I strongly believe, because that's how it worked for me, was that you should just become really good at something that you are good at outside of product management if you want to become a product manager. So that might, be mean, that might mean working in marketing, just becoming really good at marketing, understanding marketing. That might mean you know, working in engineering and becoming really good at engineering. Um, and I think that the, the strengths that you pull from, from a product manager are always different from product manager to product manager, but you need to have strength, right? And I, one of the things that I see a lot of, and I, and I don't know how you feel about this, if you're interested to hear what you say, but there's so many people who are turning into product management and just assuming that they can just be a product manager without like a certain strength. Um, I think that's kind of like a, you know, coming out of school, doing your MBA, and hitting product management, their strength is still business, right? Their strength is still something, versus just being like, I'm gonna try to get into product management without ever working on any other role, um, and hoping that we'll, I'll figure it out along the way. But I don't think, I think you have to be able to like, gain um, respect through, like not through authority, but through leadership, product manager, and the only ways you can do that is having like a core set of skills that you're really good at. That's my perspective on that. Yeah, I definitely would have to echo the sentiment there. Uh, one of the best ways to do something is to just do it. 
So if an organization isn't going to take the leap on someone, generally I find just doing that job or building a small product or having a side project is a really great way to learn those skills. Very tactical kind of concept. My favorite question in an interview to ask a user is, on a scale of one to ten, if you did not have this, what would be your pain? Like, what would what would you feel in terms of pain? Now that I've shown you this and this great mock-up or this hardware device, now how much pain would you have if you didn't have this in your life? Or how much benefit on a scale of one to ten? If anyone says seven, they're just lying. That's just the lying number. Anything above a six, they're actually willing to give you some feedback. Eight, trying to be nice. You're trying to get that eight to ten. Obviously, it's I know it's a little bit NPS-like. But it's, it's really trying to ask negative questions to get there. So those are two things that, and to, to your, you know, the point about getting into product management as an offshoot from this conversation here, uh, Sam and I have had this conversation, I think, two or three times now. It's really, so if you were to become an, a senior account executive in sales, I think we would all agree you would need somewhere between five to seven years of experience. You can start as a BDR for a year or two at a university. You maybe try, take SMB in mid-market for two to three years. You cut your chops. You might be granted AE pretty shortly thereafter, even in four years. How many, and I know we've asked this question, so how many times have each of us actually done a pricing revamp for a product? For myself, I've been in this for 15 years. I've maybe done it three, four times max. How about yourself? Uh, like a real pricing that actually sticks? Yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> Maybe once. Right. And so it's not that we haven't had the tenure in the, in the experience of product management. It's that the frequency of getting to deal with the big challenges don't come often enough. And as a, I go back to the sales thing, they got to experience each year of something new categorically and cover so much more ground. If you look at any product management framework, to be able to cover even some version of 30% of that will be more than 15 years. And so when someone wants to get into product management and be a senior product manager and a director at like 28 or 29, I'm like, okay, am I dealing with ego here or is this person an actual all-star? And the reality is, is that we've done a poor job actually creating a structure since this is a new sort of field in the last 10 years to actually show what the expectations are of becoming a product manager, a senior product manager, a director, and a VP, and so forth. And like in sales, they have BDR, we have product owner. I was granted the title product manager way too early on. Full stop. I was a product owner for two years. I was not a product manager. And my boss, Kevin, told me that after two years, he's like, you haven't been doing any product management. I forgot. He just told me, and I was like, I was taken aback by that. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you've done one of those things, and it's just manage a backlog. And you think you can do pricing, business strategy, market competence. I was totally floored, and it only came to me five or six years later after that that I was like, not after that, sorry, within my career that I realized where I actually was. And I so think we've got to do a good job creating structure and expectation of what success looks like for PMs. So you're talking a little bit more about like the business strategy or internal operation of how we get like, give product managers a path to success and help them along in their careers. What about like the systemic problem of just like getting product managers, people into product management period? Like is that is that is that the onus on the individual companies to figure that out? Is that something that we need to, as like a as a community try to figure out as a, on a larger scale? I mean, I, I don't have a don't have, have the great answer here. One point of view is that since it's a unique role, that I think it's going to have to take a lot of community effort. And in the valley, they had the APM program, and 
Tom over at TWG who founded it here and I was just on the board and helping my attendance has been a lot lower recently but in the first year, year and a half when we had people in the program, we basically had a six month placement where every single week they were doing two to three hours of class plus homework plus presentations and we were just throwing them over the deep end in every way possible trying to match their grit with the hard knowledge. And in the Valley, they run the program for two years, but they put you in Facebook, Twitter, Google, Yahoo. So the experience they're gonna get is just, you know, it's gonna be not comparable. They're gonna have an advantage over there, fine. What do we have to do? We have to do the same thing in the companies here that can support that, which we've done in Toronto. The reality is, is that that community cycle is not one, two, or three, or five years. These are going to take 10, 15 years to really build it up, in my opinion. But I challenge the group, how do we actually do that in a shorter amount of time? Because we need the seniority in our organizations to push forward, like many of the people in this room are today. And so I think that's something that's topical. I think the peer-to-peer -peer group is something that has an opportunity to continue to grow and expand. And so, you know, it's one point of view. I don't think there's a really solidified answer, but it's something that I think we need to participate in. Is anyone in the room? Oh, yeah. So I'm a marketer and understanding the aspects of product management is kind of, at first it was confusing, but as working with the product manager, I got to see his day to day. And from my, what my perspective is that it's someone who bridges gaps within the organization. And as a marketer or as, as a marketer or marketing team, how can they bring value to product managers? Do you suggest, what kind of suggestions do you have they're introducing early on in, like in schools, like universities, product management course, or within the company, how can organizations accommodate that within their marketing or any other from different avenues? Um, I don't, I mean, okay, so one thing I could suggest or one thing that I've been thinking about, similar to the design critique stuff, is, uh, you know, marketing, and actually just this year, I think it was surveyed that for the first time ever, more product managers are reporting to CPOs than they are to CMOs. So historically, product has always been a marketing function in many ways. Um, but in terms of working with marketers and product managers, I think one thing that like, I personally have pains with is how can we get uh, marketers involved in the product process, right? <clears throat> and that means that the marketers also have to have the interest and make the time to do that as well. So one thing that you, know, you could approach or think about is like, is there uh, equivalent to the design critique um, where designer, designers present um, their work to a larger audience, um, including product management, should be there and, and have that shared accountability. Is there something like that for product and marketing? Right, where you're sharing each other's work, sharing the messaging that you're building on top of what, you've, what the product managers are intending to ship or have shipped, and maybe doing some retros on like what worked, what didn't work, how can we make yeah. this better in the future. There's so much dissonance I've, I've found in terms of like product and marketing, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, and it's definitely not always thought of, especially in like a heavy tech role, as like two teams that should be one, in the same way that design and, and engineering and product are. Um, but I don't really know if I have a good answer there. That's good. Yeah. Two more questions. Two more? I like it. Uh, the back here. Um, as you mentioned, like, the, uh, there are a couple of like frameworks for the entire uh, field of product management. And uh, I've been looking at uh, a few of them, and the problem is there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, as we talked a little bit about having your strengths, is it better for the product manager to try and focus more on depth and finally to find an area where he's more on technical or on marketing or on strategic, 
or should they try to cover as much as possible with press? So, I, th I, go uh, you know, I, I'm a person of depth, right? So just this is my particular point of view. I think was that a humble brag? Or? No, I mean, I, <laughs> I think that I'm, I'm not like, for example, I'm not good at all of sales and marketing. I just was never good at all of those domains. So I just hired people to match that. No, I, so I think if you look at anybody who's, uh, let's pick a doctor, right? They're going to go through some general learning and then heavy degrees of specialization, but they're never going to be able to cover everything from you know, pharmacology to neurology to pediatrics. Like, that's 13 years of whatever it is of school. Um, I look at the depth or the sort of the horizontal landscape of these frameworks and I think, wow, like, I've probably not covered more than 40%. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But I picked the things that I was interested in. And then I went super deep and I'd spent a year or two in those areas as best as I could. And then I came out and then I said, what's next? So I do think you could, you know, like any general degree, you start with some product ownership, understanding of how to manage, you know, the dev velocity, to be able to ship stuff, to be able to track it, to be able to improve on it. And then it's like, what is the next concentric circle outside of that? And then at some level, a few of those things just kind of coalesce and click together. And then it's like, do you want to go the leadership pathway or do you want to stay deep and continue to learn? And one of the challenges with product management, and it's, it's, it's one of those things where I don't know what else we would do, is that after product management, if you're a senior product manager, you're basically going for the exec team, right? You're not, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel oh, I'm going to go learn how to do content marketing or I'm going to go become a BDR just, or sales. It, it's not the natural pathway where for sales they can keep going up and there's just so many chains up. After CPO or basically, you're trying to get to CPO, you're trying to be on the exec team. So the, the gap in the org chart, there's just this big open space where every other department can just keep going and they can go sideways. Product just kind of just rolls straight up. And so in that big space, there's this challenge where um, there's a lot of time that needs to be spent and really focusing in on what I think serves the organization. And that could be either going really deep or deciding to go horizontal, which I guess would be management in that case. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think about when I uh, uh, talk to product managers that we are considering for North uh, is curiosity. I think that's a super important part of like a really strong product manager because I see that in like the people that I admire heavily. It's just a really keen sense for, you know, I just want to know as much as I can in the fastest time possible. So I think breadth is good. I think that shows that you are curious about a lot of different things and you want to know a lot of different things. But I don't think you can really be impactful if you don't have depth. Sure, for sure. Hi, quick question. Um, CEO as a product manager, founder as a product manager, I've read about conflicts about that because it's they win and you move it through. So there's always that conflict. But I guess my question is about, you've got all the tools and things like that, but you have people. So you've got a community, you've got collaboration, but you also have conflict and there's egos in this process. So in product management, how are you managing that? The egos of the people, and you know, sometimes you got to flip some tables and make some, you know, make some commentary. But how is it all working smooth? So it's, it appears that it's happening smoothly, but it's, there's a lot of stuff in the background. So is there any guidance on that? So um, I was just sharing this with Latif before, but um, there's a report that came out in 2019 on the state of product management, and there's a little bit of side tangent, but I'll bring it back. It's the, in the top 1% of jobs in North America, it, it, product management is like number four, I think, on the list in terms of desirability and everything that comes with it. But it is on the lower quartile when it comes to NPS for the job. 
So that means that people really want to be product managers, but once they're product managers, they don't like it. Or they wouldn't tell their friends. They wouldn't tell their friends that they should do it too. I actually compare it a little bit to my engineering degree in Waterloo. When people say like, would you go back and do nanotechnology engineering at Waterloo? I would say, no. <laughs> I love the program. I would never do it again. So what, where that gets me is like, I think there's a lot of internal, like, uh, there's a lot of struggle that happens on a product management individual contributor level. I think it's something that we as a, as a society generally don't do a really good job of is like the emotional aspect. Um, when it comes to like job performance and helping people succeed in their career. I think product manager and management to me, especially in small businesses that are trying to get off the ground, it feels kind of like you're at the toilet, right? All the shit just gets funneled through you and then you have to figure out how to look sparkling clean at the end of the day and, and actually make something that works, right? So there is a, a huge emotional toll that goes along with that. Like, uh, you know, there's days when I come home and I'm like just pissed off and if anyone knows me, I'm a super calm guy. It's just how, how the job works. And, I, and as an individual contributor in a product management role, I've started to come to the fruition, and I don't know if this is correct or not. Um, maybe other people have a different opinion on this, but I think it's just part of the job. I think that, that, that uh, bringing your ego to the office, you gotta take it off, and you gotta work with your team as best as possible. But there are times when you also have to lay down the, the gauntlet on like, what the user actually cares about from your perspective. And you know the reality is that you're gonna be wrong and the reality is that you're gonna be right, and hopefully you're more right than wrong. Um, but along with that comes a lot of like, you're ne you never have a real like uh, sense of, actually, you know, the greatest way to describe this is imposter syndrome. I feel like there's a lot of product managers with imposter syndrome that I've worked with and I've seen, yeah. That's really interesting. The, I totally agree with that, and it's the, from the startup point of view, I think for me, one of the things that I would have done differently is hired someone who's just a product owner. So I think founders that are marketing leaders probably don't want to hire a senior marketing person because their alignment has to be about 100%. Anything short of that will probably create conflict. Same with a sales founder. For me, as a product-led founder, one of the things that I would have probably done is just hired someone who could manage the backlog and keep things simple. But too early on, my, my, my mistake was that I hired someone that was probably intermediate but had a really strong set of opinions without being sort of the senior and understanding the full vision. And maybe that's a little bit on me too from the communication side because it's kind of locked in my head. And so I think one of the things early on in a startup is to not try to give your job away too quickly. And I really, really, um, really like uh, Mike Rossi, he's a good buddy of mine. And at Smile, like, if he didn't have a product manager, I think till over 50 or 60 people, which kind of blew my mind. In my head, we, were, we hired someone at 10 people. I think the right time felt around 15 to 25 to get someone in that could do the product ownership and then a full product manager around 30 for my style and, and sort of the vision that I had. So I think that was probably a very specific lesson in the context of Roadmunk. Um, but I think finding the, the way with egos, you're, they're gonna start to grow as the organization goes on when they have more tenure and more clout. And so setting the right expectations. And I think ultimately for me, I found someone now that is 100% aligned on vision. And so for me to let go is actually quite easy. When it comes to some of the designs and they want feedback, great. I'll, I get to sit in once a quarter and do that. More than happy to, but I don't wake up in the middle of the night thinking, why aren't we building this? I know they've got it. And I think that's a really great place to be and sort of a place to work towards. Everybody, let's give it up for these guys.